let me just talk and you talk. All right. That's how podcasts work. Yeah, that is how it works. I Talking guess. makes the podcast go around. The podcast Let's go, go around, around. The podcast Maybe go around. Maybe this time <laughs> he'll stay. Welcome to VCR, a vintage cinema rewind. We're bringing old movies to new viewers. I'm Blake. And I'm Michael. And this is part two of our cabaret film discussion, our 1973 rewind to the Oscars, comparing to one of the greatest films of all time, The Godfather. Yeah, you might have heard of it. Yeah, and so this is our deep dive on Cabaret, a film that won the more awards than The Godfather, but not the awards, the Best Picture Award. That's right. So before we get into things, let's. I just want to quickly say that if you've ever seen Cabaret and you aren't sure if it's for you, Go check out our episode from last week where we talk about it in a spoiler-free discussion. This is the spoiler-full discussion, kind of expecting you to have already seen the film. We're going to ruin it. We're going to ruin a lot. We're uh-huh. going to just absolutely destroy this film. That's right. It's going <laughs> to break no. your hearts. It's like this not, movie broke our that, hearts. That, not that bad. But uh, okay. Anyway, before we get into Oscars discussions, let's talk in front of the camera and work our way back. So... I want to start again with kind of the beginning of the film. The opening number really draws you into this film or yeah. really drew me into this film personally. The opening shot was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. The like distorted glass mm-hmm. and then the master of ceremonies pops his head in. Yes. Pretty cool. Um, it, It's a really great music piece. It's the choreography is very good in the, the first one. And so I was like, you know what? At that point, I was like, I'm. I think I'm gonna be, like, really like this. Yeah, movie. I'm a little pumped, right? And, yeah, yeah. Like at the first impression of this movie, I was really high on it, actually. But then you came down, <laughs> unfortunately. But and and that's I guess the highlight of the film as well for me is Joel Gray's performance as the Master of Ceremonies. He's just such an enigmatic force throughout the film. It's weird because he's like not a character, but he is a character in the film. There's something very arresting about him too. Like yeah. I was actually my roommate, me and my roommate were kind of watching today, and I was like, he's like tall and gaunt, and like he's got this like like white powder on his face that just makes his teeth look extra yellow. Right. Like he's almost kind of like Slenderman's more flamboyant. Yeah. Like cousin. at what point I was like, is this man supposed to represent the devil? Kinda, yeah. Like he's very, and he's like ex- extremely effeminate. Like mm-hmm. giving kisses every now and then. So, yeah, he's very enigmatic. Is a good word for him. Yeah, and he's he's really is my the highlight of the movie for me. Like every time, and th- and this is again like maybe in the musical sense. Like the musical part of this film was my favorite part of this film by far. Like it, it, it every performance was done extraordinarily well. Like the not only the singing, but the choreography, like I said. Even though none of the songs are necessarily, like, memorable bangers. Well, there's a couple. Okay, I'll give you that. But, <laughs> like, it's it's a really interesting film in that sense. Because otherwise, like, we kind of alluded to in the first part of this discussion, is the pacing of this film is very slow. Mm-hmm. Because it, it takes place over, I don't know how long necessarily, but it's kind of the rise of fascism and nazism in germany in the 30s it's a hot minute and we see kind of sally and brian's relationship and how it ebbs and flows through that time period and i guess how even like they change over this time period as well against the backdrop of what's happening and maybe even how what's happening influences them as people as well maybe a little bit well it's interesting how like i mentioned in our previous episode 
you know, the movie starts in 1931 and the Nazis are kind of more treated as like a nuisance. Right. And there's that opening scene moment where the club owner throws a Nazi out of the Kit Kat lounge. And then like 10, 20 minutes later, there's another musical number, but this time it's crosscut with a group of Nazis beating the crap out of the club owner. Right. And that's a moment that was actually really clever and good how it was just like, oh, like, <laughs> uh, yeah, right. It's Nazis. Like, yeah. Yeah, This exactly. is not good. And, like, the, and, and so while I'll say the film is really slow, one of the other things that I did appreciate about this musical is that the tone of the movie flows and shifts very well throughout. Like at parts, it's a really lighthearted romp. And at other parts, it's like kind of a tense pre-war period piece. And it and it's able to kind of navigate through that and, and make you feel for the proper responses to each of those moments. Yeah, and even the, again, knowing the context of what's going to happen just makes it even more tragic. Right. Right, like you always, know. it's like when a movie or a show or a story spoils its own ending. Mm-hmm. It's like when a movie or a show, it's like when a story has a tragic ending and it starts the story by spoiling it for you. So you always have that like, your gut is always twisting. Right. Because you know things aren't going to end well. Kind of like the prequel trilogy. Yeah. Which is almost, I almost complimented the prequel trilogy, <laughs> but. Well, and on that aspect as well, part of it is because we kind of know that Brian isn't fully a straight male person in the 30s. And being in Berlin at this time, you, you kind of know that this is, that he is doomed in, in this world. And you know, a lot of these characters are doomed. Yeah, especially because there are, are kind of our B plot with Fritz and Natalia and, and Natalia's Jewishness is, is very much like doomed from the get go. Like, you know, that that's not going to lead to a happy ending with them. No. And actually, I will say I was surprised by how much I liked Natalia. Yeah. Like she really You should you should explain that. Yeah. <laughs> Cuz that could sound really bad. No, I mean like <laughs> I really liked Natalia's bond with What I should say is I was surprised by how much I liked Natalia's bond with um Sally. Okay. You know, yeah, yeah. cuz like there's this scene early on where Natalia's coming for an English lesson and Fritz is immediately like, oh, it's like a, it's the daughter of that wealthy business owner. Like, I better put the moves on her, right? Because everybody's broke. So he's trying to get a meal ticket. Right. And Sally swoops in and she's like, I need a drink. And, you know, the whole deal is Brian uses her room as like a teaching studio when she's not around. So he has to convince her like, no, 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 no. You can't drink. Like, she's very prim and proper like you have to be on your best behavior because mm. he needs the money right everybody needs the money so then she shows up and like everybody's kind of dancing on eggshells around her but then sally can't help but be like boisterous over the top right there's that moment where she talks about screwing and it's very like oh my like yeah. tee but then there's another great scene later where so Natalia asked to speak with Sally in private. And Mm -hmm. so the whole thing is Sally is extremely sexually liberated. Like she's really, you know, she's really really getting after it. Yeah. Yeah. Which good for her. Mm -hmm. But Natalia is still a virgin and her and Fritz had a sexual encounter. Right. After she kind of was the. That's right. Inspiration behind it. Yeah. So Fritz and Natalia start 
kind of dating, but Fritz is frustrated at how, you know, how resistant she is to his advances. So. Yes, because they're not dating at this point. You should say they're kind of dating, but they're really not. Like, they're there's like, nothing there because he wants something, but she doesn't know how to initiate it with her. Right, and there's actually that great moment where Brian and Fritz go over to her place and she sees them out mm-hmm. and he kind of just, he kisses her and it's the most like, chast non-committal kiss i've ever seen <laughs> and then she immediately kisses her dog yeah <laughs> it's like that was great and fritz is super frustrated and he's like ah like he doesn't he say something like ah, i have had uh girls from switzerland and the uk go crazy for my kisses but not this girl right so sally's advice to him is to just pounce on her to pounce to pounce and uh so he takes her advice and it's all right let's be honest it's a little it's a little rapey by modern standards. Well, like, you know, by any standards. Yeah. It's a little, it's it's questionable. Yeah. So Natalia is quite, you know, she's Perturbed not, by it. She's perturbed, yeah. Especially because, at least according to her, like, you know, she was surprised by how much she liked it. Right. After the initial- Shock? Of the pounce. Yeah. So she tries to talk to- Sally about it and it's a really great scene again because they're just so just because of these two characters and their different attitudes towards that specific area of their life also it's great because it kind of shows how callous and empty Sally can be a little bit right, right. Like, it's because she's like like I said in the first episode she's described as an endearing child and that's really like apparent in these scenes, like especially that first scene when Natalia and Fritz show up to have their lessons, like you can see Sally because Sally's not the center of attention in yeah. this. It's it's Brian who's the center of attention, and everyone's there to see Brian. Well, it's Natalia who's the center of attention. Yes, yeah, actually, you're you're right there. Like they're there to see Brian, but Natalia is the center of attention, and so yeah. Sally's jealous of this. Not, right. not not necessarily she's not necessarily jealous because Fritz is attracted to Natalia. She's more jealous about the attention. Yeah, well Natalia's like this beautiful upper class woman that these two men are twisting themselves into knots to impress. Right, but she's but what I mean what I mean though is I don't think that she cares that they're attracted to her. I literally think that it is because they're more interested in her presence than they are in of Sally's presence. It's not a sexual thing. It's like a, like they are not paying attention to me and I am the center of attention. Yeah. It's part of, yeah. I think it's also, you know, it's partly like, you know, maybe considering the sexual gender politics of the time, it's like, oh, well, she's, you know, this beautiful, virginal, upper-class woman. Like, we have to be on our best behavior for her. We have to impress her. Hmm. It's almost like they're treating her as like, they're maybe treating her as like more valuable than someone like Sally, who's right. considered, you know, maybe by the standards of the time, she'd be considered like more of a fallen woman almost, maybe mm-hmm. less of a woman because of how liberated she is. Yeah, like I could kind of see what you mean. I don't know if I necessarily agree with it still. Like, I really think that it's that it's just like she wants to be that center of attention. It's it's funny because I, I almost want to kind of analyze like Sally and, and her portrayal her portrayal by Liza Minnelli right now because when this movie started I was like I really admire the the character that Sally is um the first 10 minutes I was like I I would spend this 10 minutes with Sally 
Bowles. Like I'm I'm interested in in seeing where the character of Sally Bowles goes. And by the end of the film, I was like, I have had enough of Sally Bowles. <laughs> That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like she's the kind of friend that I've had in real life where every like three to six months, I'm like, I want to go hang out with Sally Bowles and see how Sally Bowles is doing. And after like maybe three, four hours with Sally Bowles, I'm like, you know what? That was enough Sally Bowles for the next three to six yeah, months. Yeah, I got my fill. Yeah. Yeah, I... Well, going back to that scene where Natalia kind of confides in her, I loved how, like, Natalia is clearly upset and kind of wants... She needs to be comforted, but Sally really doesn't have the emotional bandwidth to comfort her. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I think she even says, like, oh, come on, like you know, I'm no good if you cry or like, you know, I'm no good if you're not laughing. Like it does show that there is kind of this almost insidious, like shallowness to Sally. Right. You know what I mean? Like she's extremely, she's boisterous and warm and bubbly and like charismatic, but there's a kind of emptiness, emotional unavailability there. Yeah. And you know what? I can almost empathize with that. Cause I would say I'm probably not far. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, but we know, so yeah. it's fine. <laughs> um, no, but like, no, I mean, right. I think you're giving, you're doing yourself a disservice. Like, you're not as you're not, you're not. Yeah, I'm not empty. trying to. I'm not trying to be the center of attention in every room. Yeah. Also, you're not empty. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, but it, it's it's really interesting because she does a really really great job with the performance. Like, I I I think that Liza Minnelli deserved the Oscar that she won for this one. Because, like you said, there's there's a lot happening with Sally, and there's also not a lot there. Like it's it's I don't I don't know what the word is right now because I've got COVID brain, but it's almost no interiority. Yeah, like it, a, like I said in our last episode, like a certain lack of depth. Yeah, and and you know what? The other kind of time that this actually kind of bubbles up. This was another very specific moment. Is when Max, Brian, and Sally are together at his kind of retreat home and they're having that dance together in that late evening and and you know like you can feel the sexual tension in the room especially between brian and max in this moment and it feels like sally's kind of oblivious to all of these things happening yeah like she's just like there you know like having fun and stuff but she doesn't really understand the full grasp of the full weight of the situation and what it means for everybody in that yeah like um yeah what uh Brian towards the end of the movie calls her an underage. He laughably calls her. He says something like, "Oh, you think you're some underage femme fatale?" Doesn't he say like, "I've had like after dinner mitts more fatale than you." <laughs> and like yeah, she is extremely, you know, I'm really interested in like comedians and like performers and like the psychology of that and like mm-hmm. you know how someone can be so charismatic and so great at their craft and come across as so like you know warm and inviting but still there can be again that lack of depth right that kind of emptiness you know what i mean and Mm -hmm. sally really embodies that well yeah i agree and on the flip side i don't know if you want to talk about brian too much as well but brian's almost a hard character to root for is maybe not the right word but like He's such a blank slate at times, um, and yeah, he's just so painfully shy that, like, I don't know that I necessarily cared as much about Brian's happy ending. Yeah, because he does kind of get a happy ending, doesn't he? Well, 
Well, I don't know. We can talk about the ending, but like he just kind of happily divorces himself from Sally and and this world of Berlin and goes back to to Britain. Yeah, I you know I found myself a little better disposed towards Brian than I was towards Sally. I agree, but you're right. I don't really know that I now that I'm. I was complaining a couple weeks ago that I didn't really feel like I had a good enough, a solid enough grasp on Michael Corleone. Yeah. Like I felt like there was something a little hollow or maybe it was hard to get my hands around the character. Mm. And now that I'm sitting here thinking about Brian, maybe it's kind of the same thing. And that's, that's kind of what I actually was hoping you'd bring up as well, because I think that's a really good comparison of the two. And it's funny because I actually, I would say that I also know Brian's in real life as well. That it's it's really just hard to pierce their outer shell, yeah, and, and understand who the person is behind them. So it's almost he's a maybe he's as walled off as Sally is. Yeah, although in a way, absolutely, especially because and like as we find out because of his sexual preferences, uh, maybe a little bit why he's walled off as well, right? Yeah, like so when the movie starts, you know. There's kind of this maybe romantic tension between him and Sally, and she kind of just brazenly propositions him at one point, and he sort of is just kind of like, <laughs> his excuse is, well, it's a little early for that, don't you think? Right. Like, like she offered him a glass of brandy, and she just says, like, well, you like girls, don't you? And he's like, Sally, you don't just ask people questions like that. And she's like, well, I just did. And it turns out he's had sex with three different women and has not enjoyed it. Yeah. So he's doesn't really know what he is. Yeah. Anyways, later on, Sally gets stood up by her dad, and she's upset, so he comforts her, and then they bone, and he has a really good time. So, Yeah, and, and then there's also the relationship with Max, too. And then that... there's also the relationship with Max. Yeah. Which, by the way, I actually did watch this movie like 11 years ago. A friend from college showed it to oh, me. Oh, no way. Yeah. I didn't remember much, but I dude vividly remember the scene where she says like he says like screw max and she's like i do and he's like so do i yeah like that is definitely one of the most quotable scenes in the entire oh yeah yeah yeah. and like watching it 10 years ago i was like oh my god but like i can't imagine what audiences in 1972 were like right that must have because it's implied up to this point and especially i guess at this point in history but also at this point in movie history it's this is definitely not like you know, it's it's a it's more of a taboo subject than a mainstream subject at this point in time, right? Um, at that point, yeah. And, and so for us, like, I think we were kind of, we kind of felt that implication between him and Max. But then when he just like blatantly says it, that's almost against his character, even. Kinda, yeah, yeah. It's and, and it's, that's why it's so jarring, right? And like, there's, I actually really liked the so. Sally and Max go on this big shopping spree. And like at this point, uh, Brian is really clearly has a lot of antagonism towards Max, but it's unspoken. Right. And they went on this big shopping spree and Max is like, Oh here. He's like, I bought you this like gold cigarette case holder. Yeah. And Brian's just like, well, I can't possibly accept this. Blah, 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 blah. And then later on they go to his summer home and Brian is looking for clothes and Max is just like, oh, here, have some of mine. And he puts some clothes on the bed mm-hmm. and he goes rummaging through it and he finds the gold cigarette case. Right. And then later on when things are getting a little steamier, Max 
is looking for a cigarette and Brian pulls out the gold case. Mm-hmm. Like the the visual metaphor of the gold case. I was like, okay, okay, interesting. By the way, if there are any wealthy German barons who are looking for a sugar baby, I might be taking applications, but... <laughs> you might be taking gold uh, cigarette cases? I'll accept. I'll start smoking <laughs> again if you buy me one. But <laughs> anyways, yeah, I liked the buildup of tension. Even though yes. it's not as shocking to modern audiences, I liked that build. Because especially because right off the bat, it feels like... Max is trying to steal Sally away. It's like, bro, he's stealing your girl. Yeah, yeah, and I think there's the hesitation that Brian has that we as the audience are made to feel like the hesitation there is because he's clearly trying to steal her away. But really, Max's deep ulterior motive is to really start a relationship with both of them. Yeah, like, it's actually, it's interesting. It was, again, it's very ahead of its time the way it portrays polyamory. Mm-hmm. What's interesting though is that you know, this is touching on just how self-centered Sally is. When he says, so do I, you see the shock in her eyes. Yes. Like it never occurred to her that they might be bumping uglies behind her back. Yes. So. And again, and that's again goes back to the scene where the English lesson scene where Sally is the center of the universe. Yes. And every time that Sally is presented with the fact that she is not the center of the universe, she is absolutely shocked she is mortified and and she this and that's where she basically tries to blow up the situation or sabotage the situation basically yeah it's very i think i like the way you phrase that though like first 10 minutes you're like i like sally by the end of the movie you're like i've had enough of sally yes (laughs) (laughs) um and that's not to say again that liza minnelli Oh yeah, Isn't she's incredible? fantastic. Yeah. Especially like the the musical performances. Like to see her live on Broadway would have absolutely been something that you would have had to gone and seen at that time. I did do a little research ahead in time, and I guess in the original stage or like the original novel or the original musical, like mm-hmm. they really emphasize how part of the tragedy of Sally's character is that she's not as good a performer as she thinks she is. Right. And I guess some people took issue with the casting of Liza Minnella because yes. because she was too good. Yes. So, which by the way, that's when you know you've made it when people are complaining that you're too good at what you do. Uh huh. Although, uh, what I will say though is, I think that in movie world, like having her clearly not necessarily a great musician, musical artist on stage, there, I think people would have looked at that. And been like, ah, she wasn't the right person for this role. Well, thinking about thinking about it now, it would probably have also just made her a lot more pathetic and a lot less likable. Yes. Like, I think people might have actually had a harder time sitting through the movie if she wasn't good. At something. Yeah. Like, we, as viewers and as readers or whatever, we're really drawn to characters who are good at stuff. Yeah. So if she was just loud and boisterous and wanted to be the center of attention and also wasn't that great right yeah it would she'd be a harder pill to swallow yeah and and you know what let's let's quickly talk about uh i'm gonna i'm gonna pull this discussion up and then maybe we'll talk about a couple of other in front of the camera discussions but i want to talk sequels and prequels and reboots and specifically i want to talk about the origins of cabaret and that being 
1966 Broadway musical, which itself is based on Christopher Isherwood's semi-autobiographical novel, The Berlin Stories. Interesting. Um, Christopher Isherwood, basically, the, the book is very much rooted in his experiences when he traveled to Berlin in the early 1930s and uh, lived with somebody not called Sally Bowles, but Gene Ross, who he based the character of Sally Bowles off of. And there's a, a very different feel to the book than there is to the Broadway musical and the film musical. Um, and a lot of stark differences between the portrayals as well. Hmm. Sally Bowles in the book, who is actually based on Gene Ross, is very, very different character. She is somebody who is imperfect. Like she's not very good at, she actually was kind of mediocre singer okay. um, <laughs> and, and theater presence. And she also, from what I read, she was less boisterous. She was definitely as promiscuous, but less like, you know, boisterous and needing to be the center of attention all the time. So less loud. Yeah. And, and so it changed a little bit for the play, I believe. But then Liza Minnelli actually also kind of took a different approach with the character as well and based the character off of a 30s actor and a 30s musical star as well. And so, so she kind of put her own spin on things, and that's actually who she even based her looks off of as well. And so that definitely changes the tone of the film a little bit. The hmm. other thing that's very starkly different from the book, and this is actually a big critique that Christopher Isherwood and his friends uh, had with the film, is that it glamorized what 1930s Berlin felt and looked like. Um, yeah. Because in, in 1930s Berlin... There was like hopeless pro uh, poverty. Oh yeah, it was super depressed, right? Like people were literally starving on the streets. Like it was a horrible, horrible time to live there. Like they were saying, uh, like Gene Ross said that everybody was just broke. Like they would have never gone out to these restaurants that they were depicted as going out to in the film. Like it, it kind of almost like romanticizes a little bit like what berlin is like at this time like it's just like this melding pot where it really wasn't like that yeah it's funny the movie pays lip service to the fact that everyone's broke but like like characters complain about being broke but nobody seems to be hurting all that much mm -hmm. and so that kind of does a disservice a little bit to kind of showing berlin in the 30s and and the rise of nazi germany because and this is something that i i remember learning back in my history class is and it's something that, like, as a kid, when you're learning about how evil the Nazis are, you never think about, like, the fact that, like, there had to have been something to push people to, like, to, you know, find a scapegoat or something like yeah, that kind of thing. And like I'm things, not, things had to have been pretty bad. Yeah, and, you know, I'm not going to defend the Nazis, obviously. No. But, like... We are... This is a very... You know what? Let's just say it. This is an anti-Nazi podcast. Yeah. Yeah. But like- We the, are not fans. Yeah. and But at the same time, you know, like it, it, you do have to understand the pretense to, to the Nazi, the rise of the Nazis and like how crushingly in poverty Germany was at this time post-World War One. And it's actually really interesting because the novel really paints that portrait of, of what Germany is like. Um, and I actually had a quote here. Give me one second. I want to find- Okay, so the quote that I wanted to bring up is actually from George Orwell, who wrote 1984. So he actually, when he spoke about the original book that this is based on, he has a really famous quote that 
he said, reading such tales as this, the thing that surprises one is not that Hitler came to power, but that he did not do so several years earlier. Wow. Um, and I think that's part of what this movie is missing is, is that like how horrible the situation was there because, and, and you know what, and this is a little bit the discussion that I wanted to have with you as well is that I was kind of expecting the backdrop of this movie, like the, the background of this movie to be what this movie is really about. Like the, the rise of fascism in Germany, but at some point in the film, I actually kind of realized that that was actually second, the secondary story happening here. I thought it was the primary story hiding as a secondary story, but I realized that it was just a secondary story here. I don't know if you have thoughts on that or not. I don't but. know that I'd agree that it's a secondary story, but it's definitely, it's, it's something that starts in the background that like slowly emerges center stage right. as the movie unfolds. Actually, the final shot of the movie is quite upsetting yes it's really interesting and actually this is one of my other favorite aspects of the film is the end of the movie because the movie ends where it begins but with nazis but with nazis so just to describe it it mirrors the opening shot with like this distorted glass in the kit kat club but then it pulls back and it shows that the whole audience is filled with nazis yeah well it almost rewinds because if you think about like Walking walking through the opening scene of the movie, it's the glass, it's the MC's face, and then it's Brian arriving on the train into Berlin. Mm, that's and it's right. Sally's like, you know, grand entrance into the, the musical number. And in this case, it's Brian leaving Berlin and him and Sally breaking off their relationship and Sally going back to being just a cabaret singer. And then we get the final shot of the the broken glass and everybody in the audience is a Nazi. Is a Nazi. Yeah. I, I thought that was a really powerful way to end the movie. Also the fact that there's no music over the credits. Yes. And that actually happens in the opening credits as well. And I found that quite jarring too. And it really kind of sets the, the tone of the movie. Interesting. Um, I didn't notice it was quite in the opening. Silent. Dead ass. Um, and it was something that I was very, I very jarringly noted down is that I was like, is I, and I said that to Jess, I was like, is it just me or is there no sound here? And she was like, yeah, there isn't. And I was like, this is very jarring for a musical. Like Odd. I was expecting there to be like, you know, very loud and, and flashy music to pew, start pew, off pew, the film. Yeah. And it really doesn't start until after the, the glass scene where the, and the MC starts singing. Interesting. I didn't notice that during the beginning, but I thought, over the credits, over the Nazis, it was like, oh, okay, this is bad. Yeah. Like, there's no music left in the world. Yeah. But, no, I I don't know that I would agree with, it's a, I know what you're saying. I don't know if that's how I would phrase it, though, that it's a secondary story. I, I guess it, the, the rise of Nazism isn't secondary, but it's like, it's, I guess I guess I would have wanted to. It's not the focus of the movie, yeah. but it's kind of like this sort of Damocles hanging over everything. Yeah, there's but, there's that great moment where Maximilian is like, ah, those wacky Nazis. Like they're just a, they're they're useful. Like they're chasing off the uh, communists. Right. And then I think in the next scene, they're driving by what looks like the Nazis have murdered some dude in the streets. Right. And it's like, oh yeah, they're harmless. Well, yeah, and then and then it builds up to the scene where they're at that beer garden and we get that, that really beautiful rendition of a song tomorrow belongs to me. And as the camera pans away, it becomes chillingly apparent that it's a 
Hitler Youth Nazi singing this song, and then everybody starts to join in, and it it really becomes like a like a patriotic rallying. Cry. Yeah, for the for the Nazis, and it's like oh, like this is this is starting to get scary. Like this is this is where you know the point, the turning point, and and the point of no return starts to happen, and That's... it feels like you know this is big. This is that that was a very important moment. That's almost kind of like the cinematic highlight of the movie. Yeah. It's also the only musical number that takes place outside the Kit Kat Club. Yes. And yeah. it, it's and the legacy of that song is is very interesting and I want to talk about that more in legacy, but I, I want to leave that for now, I think, in, in this part of our discussion. What's I think what's especially disturbing about that scene is how beautiful the song is. Yes. Like you get kind of sucked in and then you're like, oh. Yes. Oh, what yes, no. what the song really means. Yeah. And what it's a rallying cry for. The whole Nazi thing kind of, it sort of also interferes with uh, Fritz and Natalia's relationship. Yeah, and the, the B-plot for sure. Like, Because she kind of breaks up with him because she's scared of what will happen if he associates with her. Right, and then we find out actually the big twist is that Fritz is actually Jewish. Right, and w- my favorite part is he's like, oh, you're Jewish? He's like, he doesn't he kind of just say, he's like, yeah, I just... I just wrote something different on my on my like passport. Yeah, I'm like, oh, it's that easy, huh? <laughs> like, yeah. Really? Cool. In that in that day and age, sure, why not? Probably. Um, it, it's like the tragic comedy aspect of it. It's like Shakespearean almost. That... It was kind of a beautiful twist. Yeah, where he's Jewish the whole time. You're right. He was just faking it. Yeah, and then and the, how that comes to bite him. Yeah, and then again, going back to that final image, the kind of threat that everyone's gonna die. Yeah, that Sally has. She gave up her relationship with Brian and her baby so she could keep living this frivolous showgirl lifestyle, only that she'll probably end up murdered because of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Nazis weren't too crazy about that sort of thing. Now, she's an American in Berlin, so there is a high probability that she can get out. And Hopefully. maybe not. Maybe maybe in, in Nazi Germany or, or 1930s Germany, it's harder to get out at that point. But like we've seen that in modern day where... You know, the U.S. starts to say, oh, you need to get out of Russia or oh, you need to get out of Ukraine kind of thing. And you would expect that people who want to get out have the accessibility to do that, right? You'd hope so. I mean, at the very least, her livelihood's going to be taken away. Oh, for sure. Because they're absolutely going to shut the Kit Kat Club down. Yeah, that's definitely a big no-no in fascism. Fascism, yeah. <laughs> fascism is not good for business. Yes, well, fascism may be good for business, depending on what business you run. I guess so. Um, and if it's the business of anything promiscuous or anything not conservative, then uh, you're not in for a great time. No. I want to move back to sequels, prequels, and reboots very briefly again before we move on. So, again, based on the book and the broad, the original Broadway, there is some pretty stark differences between that and, and this that I want to mention. There's actually some pretty pretty big things that were cut from after from the Broadway portion. Um, so there was actually two other characters that weren't in the film. There was Fraulein Schneider, who was runs a boarding house, and then the love interest for her is her Schultz, and they also have kind of like a doom romance plot similar to uh, Natalia and Fritz's, but theirs is basically like uh, one of them is not Jewish, the other one is Jewish, and then. There's there's more of like an apparent like rise in anti-Semitism in, in that storyline that gets cut from this. Okay, interesting. As well, a lot of the songs were removed um, or even changed from the Broadway play. So that kind of significantly alters the uh, the focus point of the film as well. 
So it'd be really interesting to watch the Broadway play and kind of compare and contrast the two. Yeah, I wouldn't mind seeing it, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of, I already mentioned this as well, but Isherwood, a lot of the inspiration of this came from him living in the 30s in Germany. And he was also a gay man living in Germany at this time. So a, a lot of this is, and, and it feels like, it feels like these are real people. Like, even though Sally is who she is and is so, like, gargantuan in, like, her personality, she feels like a real person. We've met Sally's in our life. Exactly, and I said that already. You sure did. Um, And it's same with Brian. Like, I've, I've met Brian's in, in my life. Like I, like, I know these people, and, and it, like, that part feels very genuine to me. Yeah. Um, And so, kind of the other big changes here, or actually similarities here, is that, so Gene Ross, who was based, who... Uh, Sally Bowles is based on it was a real character and the Baron Max was actually based on a real person too who also kind of wooed both of them brought them to his kind of big summer house and then also dropped them like kind of out of the blue kind of situation it, it was a very similar relationship that they had with him actually that, to be fair like doesn't Brian kind of calls Sally on that because yep. she kind of feels like she has him wrapped around her finger and she and, pretty clearly doesn't. Yeah. yeah. And he knows like, and, and that's what I appreciate about Brian is he had, even though he's painfully awkward, he's actually much more socially aware than Sally is. I don't even know that I'd say he's awkward. I think he's just incredibly reserved. Yes. Okay. That's a better yeah, way. Yeah. I would agree. He, I would agree. He never comes across as socially inept, just extremely, maybe a little, reluctant to get his hands dirty Mm -hmm. what's also interesting is in christopher isherwood's later memoir that he wrote after this film he actually said that gene ross never actually tried to seduce him tragic and so that kind of was something that he had just written for the book that was more like you know it, it was more like hammed up in more the, like especially the broadway play fan fiction starring yeah. him and his friend yeah and he actually became like he was really critical of the film when it came out and and part of it was partially actually because he felt that the film was too hesitant with Brian being gay. Right, cuz he's gay in the musical, but he's bi in the movie. Right, and it it's kind of like it feels like they kind of pull away from that at one point. Like you know when when him and Sally start that relationship together, it feels like it feels like kind of a pull away. Like, like they're, they, like they kind of turn face a little bit on, on where they're taking Brian's character. Well, you know, just thinking about it now, if the genders were reversed uh-huh. and it was like, oh, is she gay? And then it's like, nope, she just didn't have sex with the right man. Yeah. That would be really problematic. Yeah. And, and so like, I could, I could see why he would be upset with that. And I, yeah. I, I think it's kind of valid as well. Like, I think it's a valid complaint that, that we're kind of led to believe that Brian is gay and then and then it's like well maybe he's not quite gay and then yeah it, it feels like he'll have sex with Liza Minnelli don't worry <laughs> yeah so, uh, yeah I mean I don't think it ruins the character but I can understand why the original author would be quite upset about it uh-huh so that that's a lot of like what I wanted to talk about in uh, sequels prequels and reboots before we talk about effects of filming I kind of want to talk about score because this is kind of also very important to the film because it's a musical right? it is a musical yes the score is actually, a lot of it came from the Broadway play, but there was some original pieces here. It was written by a songwriting duo new, known as John Kander and Fred Ebb. They also scored Chicago, uh, so another 
Brian, okay. yeah, Bob Foss film, as well as New York, New York, uh, the Martin Scorsese film, and the song New York, New York. You know the song, New York. Uh, New York. I'm still boggled. It boggles my mind that uh, Martin Scorsese did a musical. And you know the song before yeah. you knew it was a movie. I didn't even, yeah. Damn it, Scorsese, you did it again. So let's talk. Let's talk our favorite songs, because I want to hear what are you. T- what are you two favorite songs? What like what are what were the bangers for you? The big banger for me was uh, the one your fiance was singing earlier. Maybe this time. Maybe this time. Yeah. Yeah, that's Jess's favorite. She knew that one coming in. It's uh, probably the only one I could actually. I'll probably remember tomorrow. Yeah, that's fair. My personal favorite was Money Money. That was pretty good too. Just because like I liked a I liked the intro when they're both like money. 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 Well, you're also an accountant. Yeah. Like, I assume they just play that song over the speakers <laughs> in your office. <laughs> Money makes the world, world go, go round, round. The world, world go round. The world go round. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was my favorite song by far. The opener was really great, like I said. And, and part of the reason why the opener was so great is just because of, like, the, the choreography. I loved the choreography of the opening song. Can I yeah. just say, just... um. Earlier, you mentioned that you really liked the musicals and you thought it added a lot to it. Yeah. By the end, I was kind of pretty clearly scrolling my phone during the musical numbers. Yeah. I was hard for me not to feel like the musical numbers were kind of like intermissions. Yeah. So, yeah. Maybe there's a cut of this movie where somebody cut out most of the musical numbers and that's the cut for me. Yeah, that's it's I think still, that's fair. It's because and it's because it's such a unique style and it's never really been done before. It's never really been done since. And you can't blame Bob Foss for No, I don't think it's poorly done or anything. I just yeah. don't think it was for me. Yeah, and that's fair. Yeah. All right. We we talked about this like two seconds ago, but Tora belongs to me. Very controversial song today. It's kind of been red pilled, blue pilled. Uh, I think red pilled. Yeah. Where it's become kind of a Nazi a neo Nazi symbol song. Uh, which is somewhat unfortunate because John Kander and Fred Ebb wrote the song for this film and are both Jewish people. And it was written as kind of like a... Like an FU to the Nazis? Yeah, it's like almost like a parody. But like we see with a lot of like very famous songs, often when you parody a genre or, or a theme in a song, it you often become credited with making a very hit song of that genre. And I'm going to give you a couple examples here, and and you might not be as in in the know of music culture as I am, but the song "Smells Like Teen Spirit" by Nirvana is is very much in the same vein, where they were actually the song "Smells Like Teen Spirit" is actually kind of a parody of pop rock at that time, and it became one of huh. the most famous Nirvana songs. And same with MGMT and their song "Kids." And, and you would know MGMT. They're kind of that electronic band from the 2000s. And they were trying to be anti that genre and, and pop party music. And they be, in, in, in making parody music like this, they became known for those songs. And those songs are what put them on the map. It's awkward when the thing you're trying to make fun of something, but you end up just boosting it yeah. a little bit. Interesting. So, yeah. But- so it's kind of in that similar vein. And like I said, it's it's like the like the Matrix, how the effect of of red pilling where oftentimes things that are being used in one way are commandeered by bad actors well like when people don't get the irony behind something interesting it kind of this is a weird example but like it kind of reminds me of a shylock's speech from that uh what's that shakespeare play like it's like if you cut us do we not bleed God, I'm really, I'm really 
betraying my fellow English grads. You know what? I can't help you with this one. No. But you know the speech I'm talking about, right? It's where the guy's like, if you cut us, do we not bleed? Like, you know, Shylock, it's a Jewish character from a Shakespeare play. It's The speech has been kind of, people have taken that speech out of context as sort of like a cry for mercy, when in the context of the original play, it's a character screaming about all the revenge he wants. That example would have been better if I remembered more details, but... Effects of filming. Okay. One of my favorite se- sections to talk about. We actually already talked about that Liza Vanelli was considered too talented for the role because of Sally Bowles being kind of an amateur and that the daughter of Judy Garland is kind of like the exact opposite of, yeah. of the character of Gene Ross Whoops. and Sally Bowles. The other part of this I want to talk about, we don't usually discuss this, but I think this is actually very interesting, is... The other actors that were considered for the roles here, because especially in like a rom-com where a relationship between the two main stars can make or break the film. I want, I'm going to read off some of the other people who could have been Brian and Sally. Uh, so up for the role of Brian was Malcolm McDowell, David Hemmings, <laughs> Timothy Dalton, Leonard Whiting, Jeremy Irons, John McKerney, Bruce Robinson, Tim Curry, and Paul Nichols. Tim Curry? Yeah. There's a lot of villains in that list. There is, yes. And I think that they have the right person here because it really took a very particular British person to portray who Brian was. Yes. It's very interesting to consider Jeremy Irons or even Tim Curry in the role, but I think they're almost too charismatic for the character of Brian. Yeah, they're too... It's hard to think of them back then. It's hard not to imagine them now in the role. Right. So it's, yeah. Yeah, but back then, like, Tim Curry was doing, like, Rocky Horror Picture Show and stuff. So that, like. I just have a hard time picturing young Jeremy Irons. Yeah. <laughs> He's all, he'll always be Scar to me. And even Malcolm McDowell as, like, Clockwork Orange, right? Oh, yeah. No, sorry. So I think I think they landed on the right person there. I uh, think I read somewhere that, like, he actually, he turned the role down when he found out it was a non-singing part. Yes, you are correct. But then, does Malcolm McDowell sing? Uh, I guess so. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I'm not as well-versed in Malcolm McDowell's The Malcolm, the McDowellies. And then female actors up for the role. Ursula Andress, Julie Andrews, Anne-Margaret, Faye Dunaway, Jane Fonda, Jill Ireland, Glenda Jackson, Shirley MacLaine, Barbara Streisand, Brenda Ficaro, Natalie Wood. I honestly I don't know every name there. I don't know most of those names. Faye Dunaway was the main woman in Network. Also Bonnie and Clyde, I think. Yeah. Also Bonnie and Clyde. Jane Fonda's a very relevant actor. Barbara Streisand. Yeah. I, I, I don't I think that Liza Bedelli is the right person for this role because she's the selling feature of the film. Like it's like yeah. you know, Liza Minnelli. Ah. Yeah. Culturally significant one of the most culturally significant female performers of all time yeah i can't imagine you know the casting was on point for this movie yep like yeah i can't imagine really anyone else in those roles and and this is the other point that i want to make is i i kind of said it already but like the chemistry between co-stars in a romance film is what makes or break the movie and i think it's incredible that liza minnelli and michael york succeed in making two drastically different people who are unlikely lovers feel sincere yeah like it feels sincere that they they would end up together even though there's no way that they would have ended up together yeah i agree with that i will give the movie credit for that you know what i think part of it is you see them you believe they're friends 
Yes. Before you believe that they're lovers. Yes. I think that buildup is extremely important to their, to buying into their relationship. Yeah. But I, I wanted to give kudos there because I think, I think both of them had big roles to sell. Yes, I agree. Kudos all around. Yes. And I was looking for this earlier. Uh, Sally Bowles, like who Liza Minnelli based it on, is the jazz age icon, Louise Brooks. Um, uh, and the silent films that if you really wanted to see what she's basing the character off of are from Pandora's Box and Diary of a Lost Girl from 1929. I'll be sure to check those out. Maybe this time. So the last the last kind of thing that I wanted to discuss here was Joel Grey. So Bob Foss, the director, was actually looking for a very different character and person to portray the MC in this film. And he actually wanted himself to be the, that guy. He wanted he wanted to portray the character himself, but the studio made him cast Joel Grey in this role, and so it actually made their relationship and filming this very difficult for both of them. A little needlessly antagonistic, I would imagine. Yeah, although, like I said, Joel Grey is one of the highlights of the movie for me. Yeah, that was. I don't know what this director looks like, but. I think uh, um, he kind of almost has like a Frank Sinatra look to him. Oh, so more conventionally handsome. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, I would say Joel Gray is the better choice, not just because of his obvious talent, but just because he's so like, he's not ugly, but he's just very odd looking. Mm. And that really helps with this character. Yeah. Not ugly, just odd looking. Yeah. Uh, so legacy, it's time to talk Oscars. So let me nominate or uh, read out what it won for, what it was nominated for. And then we'll discuss so, wins eight Oscars. Like Tight. I said, the most ever wins for a movie that does not ultimately win Best Picture. Or it, include Hobbits. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, it wins Best Actress in a Leading Role for Liza Minnelli, Best Actor in a Supporting Role for Joel Grey, Best Director, Best Cinematographer, Best Art Direction, Best Sound, Best Film Editing, Best Music, and Original Song Score. Uh, it's nominated and loses Best Picture and best writing screenplay based on material from another medium. Hmm. So let's break that down into kind of bite-sized chunks here. Joel Grey, I think, bar none, deserves the supporting Oscar role. He is competing against Robert Duvall, James Caan, and Al Pacino. Pacino. Yeah. Yeah. And like... He's the highlight of this film. He's so charismatic. He's such a unique character that we've never seen on screen before or since like he is a performance all on his own in this film Mm. and where when i'm at my fullest attention with this film is whenever he's on all of it's very enchanting and i think that i think that they were right to have him win because i think all of the other performances are much better are maybe better film performances but this is like a performance that you set aside on a separate pedestal that wins like an artsy award, like an Oscar. You know, I can see what you're saying, but I think if I were Emperor of the Universe, I yep. would have given those awards to either Robert Duvall or James Caan. I think James Caan's the front runner in the Godfather race for supporting, and I don't, I wouldn't say that he didn't deserve it, and in any other year he would have won it, but because this is such like a a completely unique performance that no other person could ever pull I guess off. for me, it's hard. That's hard for me to swallow just because I wasn't that interested in the musical sections. Yes. My attention started wandering. 
And also, to me, he's kind of barely a character. Well, I shouldn't say that. Like, Joel Grey did a great job. It's just, you know what I mean? Like, he's, uh, he's not... Like I said, he's a force. Like, yeah. like they use it really effectively. Like, I, I really loved when the film starts to get dark and and they cut to his face just to, like, say, like, money. Or yeah. like something, and like it kind of punctuates things because, like I said, there are points where I was like, "Is this man representative of the devil?" Almost, um, he's and, some kind of some kind of gatekeeper. Yeah, but uh, that's interesting though. So okay, well we don't agree on that. Uh, let's talk Liza Minnelli, best actress, leading role. Yeah, not even yeah, comparable yeah, 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 to yeah. anybody in The Godfather, obviously. Yeah, completely, sorry, Talia Shire. <laughs> completely deserves the award there. She portrays the character really well because, like we've talked about a few times now, she's very naive. She's a character that you like right off the bat. And by by the time you realize how toxic of a person she truly is, it's too late for ever, anybody around her. Like, it's yeah. too late for Brian to get out of there intact. It's almost too late for her. Yeah. Like, she figures out... By the end of the movie, she does say, like, I'm a self-indulgent twerp, basically. Yeah. She doesn't say twerp, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Best director, Bob Foss. I I really hesitate to not give this to Francis Ford Coppola here. Yeah, I mean, it's the freaking Godfather. Right. Like, come on. And, and of the two that have held up better, it's the Godfather. It's and definitely the Godfather. I, I, think on, I think on review, I think the Academy was wrong with that. Yeah, that you did um, a good job. However, sometimes, as we all know, the Oscars give the award to somebody for past past Glory. achievements yeah and in this case coppola was not coppola quite yet like the godfather was what put coppola on the map yeah like coppola was like our age yeah just randomly directed the godfather yeah pretty crazy um and so i can see i can see why the academy went with bob foss but i think in hindsight i think that was the wrong choice for best director i agree best cinematography this mm. is an interesting one because the godfather uses it's dark shots and it's natural lighting extraordinarily effectively. And it becomes a character in that film. However, cabaret is a much more conventional use of cinematography. It's a very interesting debate between the two. I think it's almost like comparing apples to oranges. Like they're such yeah. different. They have such different goals. I, I, I don't even really know. I think I would give it to the Godfather just because the imagery is more striking to me. That said, the musical sequences in particular were pretty. Yeah, I I think that that's a tough. I think that's a a tough one, and it could top be a toss up either way because the Godfather's much more original and unique in how it uses its lighting, and Cabaret is much flashier, and so Cabaret is going to immediately appeal to somebody. You know what? Here here's here's a rant. Here's here's something. Yeah. It's almost like comparing a Brandon Sanderson novel to a Stephen King novel. Right. It's like saying which is better. Well, it's like I, I, they're both doing different things. Like yeah. I don't know. Like, yeah. That that's a tough one. It depends on what you like. Yeah. So here's the question then. Best picture. Did the Godfather was the Godfather the right pick? Uh let me think about that for one second. Yes. 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 I agree. The Godfather was the right pick. There's no doubt about it. The Godfather this is maybe one of the few times that the Oscars get it right, where yeah. The Godfather is the cu- most culturally significant film in 50 years. Yeah. And it actually does win the Oscar. Yep, and Will Smith didn't slap Francis Ford Coppola or anything. Like, Well, we already talked about the Marlon Brando controversy. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> there was enough controversy that year. Yeah. Jeez. 
but yeah, I, I very much agree. There's not, it's not even a conversation. The Godfather is the better of the two films. Better screenplay as well. I agree. Yeah. I agree. And that's partially why it holds up so well, right? Mm-hmm. I think where I'm going to leave this section is I, I found a, a review actually that I, I thought was really interesting. And this came out of uh, The Guardian and it's David Benedict writing about how Cabaret influenced musical films. He said, back then, musicals were already low on filmgoers' lists, so how come it was such a success? Simple. Cabaret is the musical for people who hate them. Given the vibrancy of its now iconic numbers, Liza Minnelli in Bowler and Black Suspenders astride a bentwood chair belting out Mine Her, or shimmying and shivering with pleasure over money with Joel Grey, it sounds strangled. It sounds strange to say it, but one of the chief reasons why Cabaret is so popular is that it's not shot like a musical. Mm. I think he's onto something there with that. Yeah, that's very well said. Um, and and it's something that you're almost saying as well is that like you could show someone this and they wouldn't know it was a musical. You almost. could cut five numbers out and it, it's not a musical anymore, and it still works as a film. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think that's a, a very interesting analysis and and a very interesting kind of look at the legacy of this film because this one's definitely less apparent on the the immediate culture like the zeitgeist than the godfather is yeah but where it influenced musicals it i think it i think it had an impact but it was on a very particular genre rather than the far-reaching changes that the godfather made to modern cinema. yeah it's it's almost kind of unfortunate it's like farrah fawcett dying the same day as michael jackson yeah it's like <laughs> you picked the wrong day to die <laughs> all right so Jeez. personal reviews the partner factor um you want to start? Sure. Uh, I didn't watch this with a partner. Yep. I watched this in my living room. My roommate got home from work early, so he watched part of it. You know what's funny? He watched like the first five minutes, and they looked over at me, and he said, I think Blake hates you. <laughs> <laughs> I think he wants to torture you. And then he ran, and then he left to run some errands, so didn't hold his attention. Yep. Personal review, you know what? I'm a, I'm a little mixed on it. Yeah. It's uh, it's probably just not for me. Like I said, um, I a friend in college did show it to me like 10, 11 years ago. I remembered a little bit of it, but yeah, it's just, it's not, it wasn't really for me. By by the end, you know how you said by the end you're like, that's enough of you, Sally Bowles. Yeah. By the end, I was like, that's enough of you, Cabaret. Like- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I am actually on a very same playing with you uh and jess actually was in in this exact same boat where it, it's funny because i walked in this movie like i said that first number really drew me in and i yeah, thought i was really gonna yeah. end up walking away really happy with this one but like there's no characters that i personally connected with as much just because sally is who sally is and we talked about like you know how brian's character is because he's so shy and I didn't feel the connection with Brian as much. The pacing's a little rough at times. And, and you might be right onto something that like the music numbers being like so formulaically cut between each scene does kind of maybe make things a little jarring and does extend the movie. Yeah, like I, I'll, I'll be honest. I think I've said this already. Like whenever a musical numbers start, I'll be like, okay, check your phones. Like, yeah. all right, the music's done. Like, yeah. okay, you know what? You know what? Cards on the table. I definitely when I skipped the last three musical numbers, <laughs> like I just fast forward, <laughs> I just fast forwarded through them. 
That was quite a review. Yeah, all right. Didn't see that coming. Wasn't going to admit it, but there it is. Wow. Sorry, guys. <laughs> um, Some music. That, and you know what? And that's something I'll also say is like, I often find when I'm watching a musical, there are like three, four songs that really get into my head for the next week. And I haven't found that with this one. Mm. Um, and even like a really, really good soundtrack from a movie like if there's an all-star soundtrack and i'm uh, thinking most recently of the godfather obviously where it's like where like something like that pops in your head every once in a while so that i watched the godfather like several weeks ago now and i can still off the top of my cusp say that but i can't do that with with any of the songs from this and i just recently watched this and and that speaks to some of the forgettableness and some of the musical numbers. Yeah. And and so that's maybe why. Like, I think the film is is successful in some areas. I think that, you know, this film is considered one of the gayest films in the Oscars ever. And I, I think that it very much... I, I, I do want to I do want to clarify. I don't think this movie's bad by any means. No. I just don't think it was for me. No, and I agree. And I don't think this film was for me. I think that, like, it succeeds... In a few different areas, and I, I I can very much tip my hat to where it succeeds. I absolutely loved Joel Gray's performance in this one. I thought Liza Minnelli and Michael York do a fantastic job with everything they're given. Even sure, though, sure. Like, I don't necessarily like the character by the end of the film. What's really interesting about this film is that the film at no point, never once, does this film quite get to a tone of cheeriness. And it's kind of shocking to think about that because it's, I, I think as the audience, it's hard to walk away really happy or excited about this one because there's no point that kind of, there's no like, yeah, like fist in the air kind of moment with this film. There's no big celebratory moment, you know? Yeah, but at the same time, I think that was by design. Yeah, and I, there is kind of an underlying sadness to this movie. Yeah, and that's what I mean. Like, it, like even when something minorly happy, happens there's always this underlying but it's gonna lead like there's gonna be tragedy here or yeah. like or there's you know you're happy about one thing and then you're like but the nazis are coming yeah even um like fritz and natalia they do get yeah. married and it's and you're but like it's still but this kinda, is doomed you're like ah shit yeah like, like it, it's it's this movie that like it constantly like gives you a little and takes from you at the same time yeah and don't get me wrong i love being depressed <laughs> i love downers but yeah, it's, but it's that very might be... successful at it, but it doesn't necessarily make it a memorable or rewatchable film. Yeah, no, like again, I don't mind. Like I, in some ways, I almost thrive on depressing works of fiction. But you know, this movie didn't work for me for different reasons. Yeah, maybe this time <laughs> he'll say we're all gonna die. We're all gonna get killed by Nazis. You should make that the opening line for this episode. Jesus. What a happy way to end things. We're all going to get killed by Nazis. Okay. So up and coming, we have our next film, which is our annual music or mystery film. But because we've done a musical recently and we did a musical last year, I think we're going to go with a mystery here. That sounds good. And it's also kind of relevant because of how important Glass Onion was over the holidays. I think I think we can kind of compare it to that film, and I think that's an interesting discussion to talk about a mystery in, in that light. And also, the frontrunner that I have in mind for this old film is actually the movie Clue, based on the board game. 
Okay. Uh, and, and part of the reason why I, I think that's the front runner in my mind is because not having seen it, but I think it has a similar tone to Glass Onion, which I, is going to make it an interesting discussion point. I haven't seen Glass Onion. Well, you're going to have to watch Glass Onion, I think, over the next couple weeks. Have you seen the original Knives Out? Nope. What? I haven't seen it. Okay. Wow. You know, it's funny how for someone who's been to film school and who's on a film podcast, how many gaping holes there are in my resume. <laughs> yeah, you need to watch more movies during the week. Yeah, I guess so. But, uh, okay, well, your assignment then is to watch one of those this week, and then uh, we'll watch one of the other ones coming up in a few weeks. And okay. uh, let us know, like, if, if Clue, if, if it's not Clue, then what should we watch? Yeah, if there's another good mystery from, like, the 80s or 90s or before, let us know. Yeah. And maybe and, we'll and, watch and it. Maybe with a, a mystery with a bit of a comedic tone to it, like an ensemble kind of film, because that's what yeah. I'm looking for here. Okay. That's what Blake wants. Yeah. Blake, you're like a talent scout right now. Yeah, and I'm that's scouting a, talent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like a literary agent being like, this is what I want. That's what I always saw myself as, so. Oh, there you go. I'm a talent agent. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, have a good one, everyone.